This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Doug Hoyce is on the phone right now. Uh, Doug is, like Blair, a licensed insolvency trustee, co-founder of Hoyce Michelos, a firm of uh, licensed insolvency trustees in Ontario, uh, inspired to bring his financial experience to work by helping individual people and not corporations. Uh, Doug is a big advocate for consumers needing debt relief uh, so that they get fair and respectful debt management solutions. He's a regular commentator in all kinds of national media. We're so happy to have you on the show, Doug. Great to be here. Thanks very much. Now, this segment, we're going to talk about a book that's just come out of yours. It's called Straight Talk on Your Money, The Biggest Financial Myths and Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. I'm pretty sure that we could fill up an entire hour, Doug, with the information from your book. But let's just focus on a couple of things. Um, Where did you get the title? What is Straight Talk on Your Money? Well, I find that a lot of talk about money is a sales pitch. You know, sometimes it's obvious you go into the car place and the car salesperson is obviously there to sell you a car. You understand you're talking to a salesperson, but often it's not quite so obvious. Like when you walk into the bank and you're dealing with the bank teller, you don't maybe fully understand that they're also there to sell you something a lot of the time. So I think we need fewer sales pitches and more straight talk when it comes to our money. So that's what this book is about. As you mentioned, I go through 20 two myths, many of which are sales pitches, and I give you the straight talk on your money so that you you can be aware of them and then uh, avoid them or modify them as necessary. Now, it's really a, a really good point, when, and the bank was a great example, because you don't think that they're trying to sell you a product that's going to uh, benefit them in the long run. It might benefit you as well, but in the long run, they're going to earn the money, they're going to do a little bit better as a result of having more of your money, whether it be your mortgage or your loans or whatever it is. I think that's a really valid point. Yeah, and it's insidious because you don't realize you're being sold to. You've been going to the bank your whole life. Exactly. And you actually know who the person is there. You're, you're very friendly with them. And so you put your card in the machine because you've got to you know, cash a check or get some U.S. money or whatever it is you're doing at the bank. And, and they instantly say to you, oh, this is, this is great. You, the computer says you qualify for a $10,000 line of credit. Do you, mm-hmm. do you want me to sign you up? And you're sitting there going, oh, oh, okay, well, I guess if the bank thinks it's a good idea, I guess I should do it. Obviously, they've done an analysis of my situation and and know what's happening. Uh, Yeah, they've done an analysis all right, and they offered you that line of credit as opposed to a credit card or a loan or something else because that's probably the thing that has the least risk for them, but they can make the most money on, and that's why they're offering it to you. So you just got a sales pitch, and you didn't even realize it. And if you were aware that a sales pitch was coming, maybe your guard's up and you can ask questions and be a little more guarded about it. But when you don't realize it's coming, that's when you get yourself into into trouble. It's not necessarily age-specific that they're directing it to. You could be a senior, you could be a really a young person just starting out, or maybe student loans and you've got your first bank account for the first time, or, or you're living on your own for the first time. And... 
you know, not everybody is, is doing everything in your best interest, right? Absolutely. And you're right. If you're a student, then they're targeting you with maybe a credit card here. You get a $1,500 balance. It's got a pretty high interest rate because that's really all the bank can make money off with you. Uh, maybe it's a student line of credit or something. If you're a senior, it's, oh, well, look at this. You're, you're a senior. You've got a pension coming in. Uh, would you like to talk about, uh, you know, maybe a loan so you can lend some money to your, to your adult children? Maybe we want to talk about a reverse mortgage, maybe something else that's more applicable to a senior. So, they're very good at targeting the offer to whomever is standing in front of them. And as you said earlier, it may or may not be in your, your best interest. And, and I'm not here to say that banks are bad. I mean, they're in business. They, this is what their job is. So I'm certainly not saying you should never go into a bank, and I, I don't want to paint them as the, the bad guys here. All I'm saying is you should be alert. You should have your spidey sense tingling, as it were, so that you understand what's coming, and therefore you can respond appropriately. Yeah, I, I wonder, Doug, if we can dig into the book a, a little bit. Can we focus on you know a couple of the the top money myths and traps? You know, I, I read the book in detail. A lot of them I can see. You know, my clients and even myself at, at times falling into a few of them. I wonder if we can pick a couple that you think have resonated most uh, with individuals as you, as you've published the book very recently. Well, I uh, got an email today, as a matter of fact, from somebody who said, hey, I read the book, and I, I kind of have to object to what you said about the credit score in the book. I was hoping we'd talk because, about that, yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. So, so um, he, he uh, happens to be in the, in the lending business, and he said, he's, he's a mortgage broker, and he said, you know, a credit score is really important if you want to be getting a mortgage. So I, I think, you, you know, what you said wasn't really on base there in the book where, where you talked about credit score. And I said, well, let's be very specific about what I said in the book. I said that you should not organize your entire financial life solely for the purpose of getting as high a credit score as, as possible. I understand that a credit score is important. I get it. If you're going to qualify, trying to qualify for a mortgage, a car loan, anything, the higher the credit score, the better. You're going to get better terms, lower interest rate, and so on. But you can also become overly obsessed with a credit score. So your credit score is based on a number of things, one of them being, well, how much debt do you already have and what's your utilization on it? So you could go out and get five credit cards that all have a $10,000 credit limit on them, and if you carried a balance of $2,000 on each one of them, you'd actually look pretty good to the credit scoring algorithm. Your utilization is 20% because you're borrowing 2000 against the 10000 on each card. That's a pretty good utilization. So that would probably make your credit score look pretty good, all else being equal. Well, let's ask the obvious question here. Does it make sense for you to have five different credit cards with a $10,000 credit limit on each and borrowing $2,000 on each of those five cards? That's $10,000 you're borrowing on your credit cards at probably pretty high interest rates. I don't think so. I think it's better to have money in the bank, cash in the bank, and so on, but that doesn't show up on your credit report. There's no section on your credit report that says you're a good saver and you have money in your TFSA or your RSP or anything like that. All it shows is how you're handling your debt. So I don't believe we should be focusing on trying to get the best credit score. I think we should be focusing on doing what's best for ourselves, which in a lot of cases is having less debt and more savings. Maybe it's because there's just not that many easy indicators that are out there, but a lot of people see a credit score as the be-all and the end-all, the indicator of whether I'm you know, a good customer or not. Um, and to your point, you know, they can be completely divorced from your actual financial health. Yeah, uh, well, that's absolutely right. I mean, if, if you had 
$10 million in the bank. You'd never borrowed a, a cent in your life. Mm-hmm. You owned your house outright. You wouldn't even have a credit score. Yeah. Yeah. You'd and be worse become, than, than the person with the five credit exactly, cards. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that just, that just makes absolutely no sense. So again, one of the themes in the, in the book, Straight Talk on Your Money, is you've got to be the boss. You've got to do what's right for you. So if you know you're going to be trying to qualify for a mortgage or something in the future, okay, then I guess you've got to take some steps to make sure your credit score is as good as it can be. But let's not go crazy. Let's not go overboard here. Let's not get so much debt that it ends up hurting us in the long run. So, Doug, so, so continuing on with that thought, if I'm supposed to be in control or, or the boss of this situation and I'm not very good with money, I don't have that base of knowledge that you obviously have or others have, where do I start? How, what are the things that I first keep in mind before I walk in that door? Well, I think everybody has to do their own research and do their own thinking. So one of the themes also in the book, in fact, it's one of the first chapters, is you should not just blindly rely on experts. Don't just believe whatever the the banker or the financial advisor tells you. So I think the starting point for everyone is to do some research, do some some thinking on your own. Um, There's tons of resources at the library. They're free. There's lots of websites out there and blogs and podcasts, obviously shows such as the, the one we're on right now have lots of great information. So I think you do your research, learn what's out there. You've got to obviously separate the wheat from the chaff a bit because some stuff is going to conflict with other stuff, but do the thinking so that you then become aware of, um, of what's out there. I mean, if, if you want to have better health, then you need to learn a bit about exercise and nutrition and things like that. Um, it's the same with money. You've got to put the time in, put the effort in to, to do some learning. Doug, what about another really big learning from the book? So the credit score, I think, is absolutely pivotal. Is there another one that's really resonated, you know, either good or bad, with the folks that you've shared the book with? Yeah, the the other big section, um, and this is the one that gets comments a lot from people in both Toronto and Vancouver. Got to be housing. (laughs) You got it. Real estate. Yeah. Real estate. And so... Uh, One of the things I say in the book is you should not think of real estate as an investment. You should not think of your house as an investment. And people in Toronto and Vancouver go, well, that's crazy. I mean, look at the house prices. They go up 20% every year, year after year after year. It's a fantastic investment. Yeah, okay, that's what's happened over the last five or six years. If you look back over 20 or 30 years, it's not exactly the same. But the reason I say that is if you think your house is an investment, you will be much more tempted to buy way too big a house and take on way too big a mortgage than what you can realistically afford. Even if your house is going up in value, if you can't afford to make the mortgage payments, if you become house rich but cash poor, can't even pay the property tax, taxes, you're trapped in your house, you can never even go out for dinner. I don't think that's a great situation. So my advice is think of your house like any other consumer good. It's just like a toothbrush. It's something I buy. It's something I get value out of. I use it, but it's not an investment. I'm not buying a toothbrush because I think it's going to go up in value. I think we overestimate how much our houses have gone up in value too, because if you've lived in the place for 10 years, you've probably put a new roof on it and fixed the furnace and done some plumbing and did did some landscaping and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I think we overestimate how much we've actually made because we ignore all those costs. But if you think of it as a place to live, 
And as a result, I think you'll be much more realistic in what you're buying. You'll try to have a bigger down payment, and you'll get into a lot less trouble. But, but yeah, the, the real estate professionals, the mortgage brokers, they, they don't agree with that. It's, hey, look, they're, they're going to go up in value, so the bigger the better. Well, I just don't agree. Right. Doug, with the book, is there someone that the book is really aimed at, or is it a broad book that you know, most people will find something to, to you know, take from it? It's an excellent question, and I've had great response from millennials because they right. said to me, yeah, no one's ever taught us this stuff before. It's <laughs> not like we learn it in school. But I've also had five or six people who are 80 years old and over say to me, you know, this is, this is really good. There's a, a couple of good things in there. There's a chapter on being immortal, which really speaks to the, the older uh, people out there. Um, and a lot of them say, yeah, this is, this is great stuff. I'm going to pass that book on to my adult children, and, uh, and it's good for them. So um, it's, it's not an age-specific book. I've tried to cover basic financial themes, which I think apply at all ages. The book is called Straight Talk on Your Money, The Biggest Financial Myths and Mistakes and How to Avoid Them. Author is Doug Hoyes. Doug, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. For more information about Doug, you can get on his website. Very easy to do, hoyes.com. That's H-O-Y-E-S dot com. We'll be back with more right after this. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. Get a financial fresh start by calling 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. How and when to use the province's, British Columbia's, statute of limitations on debt. That's what this segment is all about. So, First of all, Blair, you've got to explain it to me because yeah. I don't have a clue. Well, I have a little bit of a clue. Mm-hmm. What is the statute of limitations on debt? Yeah, so this is, is something when I sit down with folks and I explain to them about this concept, they just have no idea that, the, you know, why isn't this more well-known? Why don't I already know about this? So the idea of it, you know, a statute of limitations, I think most people have a general sense that if something happens, you know, if you want to take some action against it, you know, if someone caused you an injury, for example, you can't wait forever to decide that you're going to, you know, cause that person to to be charged or something like that. You have to take action within a specific time, okay? okay? Now, the same thing applies for debt. So what it means in a debt situation is if you owe somebody money, they can try to collect from you for you know a long time, but they can really only have a legal avenue against you for a very short period of time, shorter than people think, and that's two years. Okay. That's the statute of limitations in BC. And I think two years is the same uh, uh, period of time if you're wanting to charge somebody or or take uh, legal action as well. Two years from the date of whatever it is, if it's an accident or whatever. Yeah, so you'd, want, you'd want to get your own legal advice for that stuff, but yeah. definitely from a debt point of view, and the Limitations Act is very broad, so it does cover many things, but cool. from a limitation for a debt, yeah, it's two years, um, and it's important to know when that clock starts ticking because there are things you can do, you know, maybe not even knowing it, that reset that clock and actually aren't in your best interest. Okay, let's talk about those. When does that debt start ticking, or when does the clock start ticking on that? Yeah, so there's a couple a couple triggers. So, you know, one is when was the debt incurred? Um, when was the last payment made against the debt? So, you know, if you borrowed the money once and never made any payments, okay, well, that's your day. You know, that that's the date that we're going to start ticking from. If you borrowed the money a long time ago and you just continued making payments on it for a period of time, it's when was your last payment made. That's okay. when your clock would start ticking. So if I've had this, pay, if I've been making this payment for 18 months and then I stop, yep. then it's at that point. It's not from when I first got it. Exactly. It's at that point. Okay, good yeah. to know. So what's really important there, now the third way too, is you could also uh, give a 
written acknowledgement. You could sign something, say, yes, I agree that I owe this debt, and then that would reset your statute of limitations clock as well. Okay. But that's, that's pretty uncommon. Most of the time, what happens is people think they're doing the right thing, um, and they think they're working with a collection agent that's actually very nice and very reasonable, and you know they're a bit good cop, bad cop sometimes, but often the collection agent will say, you know what, I know you can't pay very much, just make a good faith payment this month this month. You know what? Send us in $10, $20, $50 or something like that. And the individual thinks, wow, this person's really working with me. They understand I can't pay very much. They can't reduce the debt, but at least they're not going to make me pay a whole lot. Oftentimes what's happened is the collection agent has realized this person's at, you know, 23 months of no payments. If they go another month and they don't pay, the statute of limitations kicks in and they can never collect the full amount. So sometimes making those small payments, all you're doing is making sure that you're never going to be free of that two-year statute of limitations. Because let's say you went you went that 23 months, then you paid it, and then yeah. it starts again, starts right? starts all over again. Whereas if I just left it, I'd yeah. be more free and clear, exactly. or at least in a different place than when I started. Mm-hmm. So are there exceptions to that two-year rule? Um, you know, there are some claims that just, you know, aren't subject to statute of limitations at all. Um, you know, if there's a civil claim, if someone goes to court and enforces a judgment against you, that's not subject to the two-year rule. There's a much longer timeline for that. Okay. Um, you know, debts owing to the government, like CRA and student loans, you know, very clearly there's no statute of limitations for government debt. Um, you know, if you owe the government money, you either need to pay it, you need to deal with it through a bankruptcy or a proposal, um, or essentially that money's not going to go away. Okay, cool. So, go ahead. Oh, and I was going to say, you know, other debts, you know, things that would be common sense-wise, you know, arrears of child support and spousal support. Not that anyone would want to do this, but you right. can't wait it out for two years and then expect that your liability would be extinguished. It's not. So we sort of talked about when the two-year period, the two-year period starts and stops. Can you give us sort of an example of when waiting until the debts are statute barred and how that solves a person's financial problems? Yeah, so it it all depends on the individual's circumstances. But, you know, I deal with a lot of senior citizens um, in in my office. And, you know, sometimes as I sit down and we we look through all the debts, there'll be a number of debts where they, you know, they haven't paid on them for, you know, five years, six years or something, but they're still very worried about it. Okay. They're still very worried that, you know, a bailiff's going to show up tomorrow at my at my door and start seizing my assets, or they're worried they're going to get, you know, dragged in, into court, um, and, you know, they're, they're going to be, um, you know, publicly shamed or, or things like that. So, um, you know, essentially, if the two-year limitation has already expired, they don't need to have those worries. Okay, cool. Uh, what about... Uh, when the statute could apply, but a person wants to take action anyways. How does that work? Yeah, so it's definitely, it's no fun owing somebody money. And very clearly, the statute of limitations, just because that's over, that doesn't mean that you don't owe the money anymore. Okay. What it means is that you can never be forced to pay. So if two years has elapsed and a collection agent is hounding you and threatening you that they're going to take legal action against you, you know, you can rest relatively easily knowing that they're not going to be able to take any legal action against you, but they're still going to harass you. They're still going to have negative notations on your credit. So sometimes there's a lot to be gained by actually saying, even though legally I could never be forced to pay these debts, I know in good faith I borrowed this money and in good faith I want to take some action to deal with that. Okay. So you could help me do that or help someone do that. Exactly. 
exactly. So, you know, quite often we'll explain to somebody, you know, these debts are probably statute barred. You know, to the best of our knowledge, it looks like they're never going to sue you. You're probably never going to have to go to court and they can't force you to pay. Um, But perhaps for your peace of mind, for you sleeping better at night, uh, you want to go through either a bankruptcy or a proposal proceeding just to know that you face things head on and at least the harassment is going to stop. See, it just makes so much sense to me that talking to somebody like you is going to put a whole bunch of things, not only down on paper, but maybe help me sleep better Mm -hmm. because... Because I'm a kind of person that I would want to pay back my debts. You know, like if I borrowed money, I'm going to pay it back eventually. Mm -hmm. But I want to do it in an easier or in an easy way, right? So that doesn't cause stress on me or my family. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can help me figure that out. Yeah. And, you know, part of it, too, is looking at the person's budget and figuring out reasonably what can they afford to pay back on their debts. Okay, because sometimes and especially, again, the senior citizen demographic, there's such an imbalance between what's being paid on debts, paid on interest every month and what's being paid to live. You know, right. what are the necessities of life that are, you know, suffering and the grocery bill is, is not getting getting paid or they're barely eating because all the money is, go, is going to interest. So when I sit down with somebody, I like to look at, well, what can you afford to pay back on debt? You know, which of these debts might be statute barred versus not? And are you going to be better off continuing to do what you're doing? Or are you going to be better off if we look at either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal? And I guess the, the sense of relief that some folks feel is pretty significant. Yeah, huge, hugely so. Um, you know, we get, you know, bouquets of flour and car- <laughs> flowers and cards and, and different things with just, you know, the nicest words you, you can imagine that people feel, you know, it's, it's life changing when they can wake up and, you know, either armed with the knowledge that, you know, this person that's calling and threatening to sue me, they don't have a leg to stand on. So I'm just not going to worry about it. Or these persons that are calling me, they're going to have to stop because now I'm dealing with Sands and Associates and they're going to get in the middle. They're going to stop all the calls and they're going to help me work out something that's reasonable to pay on these debts. If I can do it, you're going to Mm -hmm. help me figure that out. If any of this information resonates with you, it's such good information because we're not alone. And I think that's one of the key things to remember, too, that folks thinking, oh, my God, nobody else is experiencing this. That's just Mm -hmm. not the case. No, that's absolutely a, a fact of life. Um, you know, it, it's interesting, too. I often sit down with families that come in at, at once and, you know, I'll do the consultation for the individual that we're talking about. And then, you know, mom or dad might be at, at the table, too. And sure. they'll say, well, you know, why don't you talk to me a little bit about my situation? Um, and then as soon as people understand, you know, there there is the opportunity to get help. You know, they don't have to carry this burden by themselves. Um, you know, a lot of openness within, within the family can sometimes happen at, at those meetings. And we can say, you know, you know, we've been hiding things for a while. Let's get it out into the open and let's deal with the family's debt issue. Because there's so much, there's so many things out there that will protect us or at least look after us a little bit better than maybe that we know about right now too, right? Yeah. Whether it be the statute of limitations or just even the idea of putting together a consumer proposal or, or even if a bankruptcy makes sense or just even coming up with some sort of plan to make these payments or to pay off this debt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Now, this is a segment uh, to give you some really good examples of real people who have faced a debt, big or small, 
how they did it, and each each example is going to be a little bit different as we look at these case studies. Uh, one of any of them uh, you might be able to resonate with. So let's first start, Blair. Let's talk about what is a consumer proposal. So we've all got that understanding, mm-hmm. and then we can move into the into a couple of examples. Oh, sure, Elaine. And yeah, I'm happy to talk about the case studies because that's the most interesting part of my day to day. Is it's it's real people. You know, yeah. it's not just debt. It's a family. It's a situation. Uh, it's a bunch of challenges. And then what I'm so pleased about is how well a proposal can fit many of those challenges to get people back on track. So what a consumer proposal is, is it's meant to be a compromise. So it's meant to be to be saying that you owe a bunch of money and we all know if, if you're in my office, typically you're not going to be able to pay that back in full. And in general, people don't want to go into bankruptcy, you know, unless it's absolutely their last resort, if nothing else would work. So a proposal is meant to be an alternative to a bankruptcy where the benefits are you don't go into bankruptcy, you stop all of the interest on the debts, and then we figure out collectively what can you afford to pay back to avoid the bankruptcy. So in most cases, if you pay back about a third to a half of the debt over a period of usually two to four years, you didn't have to go bankrupt, you got a payment that you could afford, and you get your life back. So, you know, in many cases, if someone comes in owing $20,000, they can walk out with a consumer proposal for about a third of that amount with no interest, no harassment, no additional fees. And once it's paid, you're done. Once it's paid, you're done. You move on, you rebuild your credit, and, you know, ideally you don't get into the same situation again. Cool. Well, let's talk Mm -hmm. about some folks that you've had the opportunity to help uh, with uh, using a consumer proposal. Yeah. So the the first situation we we can talk about um, is I deal with, um, you know, a number of folks, some of them owe a ton of money, sometimes a little bit lesser amounts of money. And sometimes people are really hesitant to come in when they don't owe $50,000, when they owe a lot less than that. But it Uh, could be crippling at the same time, right? Absolutely. Depending on your tolerance level, right? You know, even a small debt that you know that you can't handle, that can just give huge amounts of stress and, you know, hopelessness. If there's people calling you 10 times a day and you've got nothing good to say to them, that can be, you know, pretty debilitating for yourself and your self-worth. Absolutely. So the individual that I worked with, she was a 43-year-old woman and she had about $9,000 of consumer debts. And what was really critical for her is she had multiple payday loans. And that all happened when she was unemployed for a period of a few months. Okay, so consumer debt is credit cards? Yeah, credit cards, lines of credit. It could be income tax. It could be student loans. Essentially, it's anything where there's not an asset to back it. And what I mean by that is it's not a mortgage or a car loan. In those situations, if you don't pay the mortgage or pay the car, well, you're going to lose the house or lose the car. Got it. So consumer debt is something... If you don't pay, they they can't take something from you, but definitely they can make your life difficult. And in this case, uh, my client had $9,000 of debt. A bunch of it was owed to payday loans. And the interest and the fees on them, as we started to do the math, it was about 500% annual interest charges wow. on the payday loans. It was just ridiculous. Now, I don't know what a payday loan is. Mm-hmm. What is that? Well, it's generally your last resort. So it's very expensive financing. And the way that it started is literally on payday, you know, you'd get your check and you wouldn't be able to cash it. So you'd go to Joe at the mill who had a little bit of money and he'd, he'd loan you a little bit extra. And then when you got your check cashed, you'd pay it back with some extra charges. So that was the concept, you know, very small based amongst a few friends. But now there's franchises everywhere of all different, you know, machinations of cash and money and different things like that. And it's very high cost financing. So you walk in, you know, basically proving your employment and you walk out with a loan. But when you have to pay that loan back, typically on payday, you know, a week or two from now, you're paying back what you borrowed plus big charges. Again, up to 500% annual interest rates in some cases. Okay. So what happens, Elaine, unfortunately, is people get into a cycle that I never see just one payday loan. 
But it's when they're paying back the second, they take out a third. And paying back the third, they take out a fourth. So sometimes there's up, up to 10. But uh, back to our situation yes. here. So it was $9,000 of debt. Um, my client had been unemployed for a period of time, but she was now working. And she just wasn't able to keep up on all these payments. And she felt hopeless that everything she's paying is going to interest and she wasn't getting out of debt. Got it. All right. So she came to you mm-hmm. and consumer proposal was the suggestion. Yeah. So definitely at $9,000 of debt, you think long and hard before filing a bankruptcy. You, you could do it, but you know you want to think of every alternative. In this case, we were able to work out that she could afford to make payments of about $200 a month. Okay, so she couldn't afford the, what they were asking, which was multiples of that, but $200 a month of what, is what she could afford. And we figured out under a consumer proposal, if she made that payment for 24 months, that would be enough. The creditors would accept that in full settlement. So her $9,000 debt plus interest was reduced down to just over half, to 4800 She paid it off $200 a month for two years, and she's going to rebuild her credit with no long-term effects. And the key is here is that that's where you guys come in. That's the work that you do is mm-hmm. negotiate that yep. with the creditors and say, this is what's possible. That's exactly it. The only way you can do a consumer proposal is to work through a licensed insolvency trustee like Sands & Associates. And if people are wondering, well, where's the catch? Where's the fees? How do you guys get paid? There is no catch. Um, there are fees, but they're built into the proposal. So if we work out $200 a month is what the individual can pay and two years is a reasonable term, the trustee gets paid out of that. The person doesn't pay anything extra. They don't pay any upfront fees to figure out if this works. And essentially, you know if you have a deal, you don't need to wait months or years or anything. You know if you have a deal in the space of about a month and a half. So the law says if we make a proposal to creditors, they have to answer us back within 45 days. So it's not going to be hanging over your head for a long time. You're going to know whether this proposal works and solves the problem. Okay, good. Let's look at the second uh, case study here. Mm. Also involving a woman. We're Mm -hmm. not going to take that personally. Nope. (laughs) She was self-employed and had a pretty significant size debt. Yeah, and we see a lot of self-employed individuals, and it's pretty rare that you find a self-employed individual who doesn't owe tax debt. And part of that is it's so much more difficult when you're your own boss, when you're your own essentially trust account for Canada Revenue Agency, you've got the obligation to pay your taxes rather than having your employer take it off the top and you never miss the money because you never had it. Exactly. A lot of self-employed folks tend to get into trouble with taxes, or at least the folks that I see, um, and sometimes they feel very helpless thinking that there's nothing you can do to reduce tax debt. And that comes from, you know, we get a lot of U.S. news and there is nothing you can do to reduce U.S. tax debt in Canada totally totally different regime. We can help reduce, consolidate, um, do a consumer proposal to repay the portion of the debt that can be afforded. So in this situation, um, my self-employed client came in and she was owed about $43,000, including a component of tax debt. And she was getting some collection calls, you know, no real court actions at this point, but it was a sense that, you know, she wasn't making headway each month and she was, you know, scared to file her next year's tax return, wondering if this debt goes up, you know, how am I going to deal with an even bigger debt? So what we did is we sat down, we reviewed all the situation, all the the options of the situation. Uh, We looked at a bankruptcy proceeding pretty seriously because in this case, you know, $43,000 of debt, that's pretty well in the ballpark of what most people would consider filing a bankruptcy for. Um, But in her situation, she was working, she was solidly employed, she knew she had the ability to make monthly payments, and she really wanted to try a consumer proposal to see could she get the benefit of freezing the interest, reducing the amounts, and getting some time to restructure herself without a bankruptcy. Got it. And what did we do? 
Well, you, yeah, you got it down to a pretty reasonable total that she had to pay uh, per month. Yeah, so so a lot of our, our advertising or our banners, it says cut your debt by up to 70%, and it's not in every case we can achieve a 70% reduction. Sometimes it's lower, sometimes it's higher. In this case, it was almost bang on, almost a 70% reduction in her debts, which was just a remarkable result. So she walked into our office, the first meeting, very you know ashamed of the situation, feeling a bit hopeless, owing $43,000. By the time we had the consumer consumer proposal filed, she has signed on for monthly payments of $230. So just $230 on $43,000 over a term of 60 months. So bringing the debt down to just over a third of what it was before. Yeah, and taking a, a, a good chunk of time to pay it off, but mm-hmm. a manageable, yeah. a manageable, not only a manageable uh, period of time to do that, but certainly for a, a monthly payment of $230, mm-hmm. that's, that's really terrific. Yeah, as I sit down with clients and we, we calculate the proposal payment, you know, usually I do two things. I say, well, let's figure out what you're paying now on your debts. And it's almost every situation the proposal payment is less than the interest charges on usually just one or two of the debts if there's a bunch of them. So so the payment is so much more affordable, um, you know, that, than most people would an- anticipate. Now, uh, I know that this might be a question that, that folks have in the, back of your, in the back of your mind. Is a consumer proposal something that I could... Uh, do myself? Mm-hmm. And I know what the answer is. Yeah, and the answer is absolutely not, or we wouldn't be doing these shows here. Right. Um, is a proposal, it's a legislated solution. So it's part of federal law, and in order to use federal law, you need to have a trustee, a licensed insolvency trustee, to help you with it. So, you know, you can try to informally negotiate with anybody that you owe money to getting all of your creditors to agree to take back a third of the debt with no interest charges and no one's going to bother you over a period of years, usually it's very, very difficult for that to happen. That's why the law exists where a trustee can say, you know, the law determines that this is a better recovery for everybody here. So, you know, I don't even need everybody to agree on a proposal. If you owe five people money and I get at least half of them on board with by dollar value, everyone else is bound by it. That's different than if you had done it on your own and people could opt out. Now, that's interesting. So mm-hmm. you don't have to have every creditor agree. That's right. Just fifty percent, or yeah. or and is it? It's not the numbers of people, nope. but it's the dollar value. Just the dollar value. So in in some cases, if someone you know owes Canada Revenue Agency money, and you know CRA for whatever reason didn't want to accept their proposal, as long as they owe Mastercard or Visa a dollar more than CRA, and Mastercard or Visa is willing to accept the proposal, the government has to go along for the ride. Wow. So even and so that really knocks out on the unreasonable factor yep. that you're going to come across. I mean, mm-hmm. not everybody's going to be jumping on board with this. If you owe me a certain amount of money, I want that money back. Yeah, that's really good to know. Yeah. And another really important thing, Elaine, is protection. So if you're doing a consumer proposal, you know, most people understand if you file for bankruptcy, nothing can happen to you. Nobody can sue you, harass you. All the calls have to stop. They can't take you to court. You're in bankruptcy. Consumer proposal gives you all of those benefits without a bankruptcy. Fully protected, the time you need to restructure, but not the hit of a bankruptcy. And the support throughout that period of time to repay as well. I mean, there's yeah. other services that Sands and Associates offers. Oh, absolutely. You know, we want to transform the entire person. So part of the proposal is some very in-depth financial counseling that you need to attend with us. It's all included in the proposal. We meet with you at least a couple of times over the term of the proposal to just make sure we've got a long-term solution here. For any more information on any of the things that we've talked about, and if this resonates with you, check out the website, sands-trustee.com, with the goal being living a debt-free life. We'll be back with more right after this.
On the line with us right now is Andrew Sakamoto from the Tenant Resource and Advisory Center. And now this center, we'll, we'll, call, we'll call it TRAC, that's, that's the cool name for it. Its purpose is to pr- promote the legal protection of residential tenants right across the province by providing some good information, education, support, and research on residential tenancy matters. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Let's talk about uh, the, um, the obstacles for folks today living in the province. Uh, we can talk specifically about the Lower Mainland, but also Vancouver Island, uh, up against this pretty uh, challenging uh, residential market or, or uh, uh, rental market these days. I mean, we're dealing with uh, rental numbers that are so low. I mean, ocu- or, you know, availability is so tight these days. Uh, folks must be really, really challenged if they're needing to rent and can't find a place. Do you ever, do you end up talking to those folks too? Absolutely. You know, over the past uh, couple years, on our uh, tenant info line, our, our organization's phone service, we've seen a, a steep rise in the number of complaints around uh, housing uh, unav- uh, unavailability and unaffordability. Um, you know, tenants have very little bargaining power when they when they go to um, you know a viewing and want to uh, enter into a tenancy with with a landlord. Um, and also, you know, with the vacancy rate being so low and with you know tenants being so um, so desperate for for housing, uh, we're seeing a lot of landlords try to pressure tenants out of their housing. So there's there's been a real hit to um, uh, tenant security of tenure across the province. It's uh, it's a rental housing crisis, and it you know it's something I I really hope the new government can uh, can help fix. The other thing that's always shocking to me that that comes up in uh, cups up comes up in the news are folks that are taking advantage of folks who are trying to rent a place. How many times have you had to deal with uh, the situation where somebody has uh, fraudulent, fraudulently represented themselves as the landlord or as the person who's renting this unit, uh, and money is exchanged and information is exchanged, and then that renter finds out that that's not the person at all and somebody's taken, been taken complete advantage of. It, it, it's absolutely something that we hear about uh, quite frequently on our, on our tenant info line. Um, I, I'd like to mention, actually, that we, uh, we, we offer a, a, a free online course. It's, it's a video-based and self-paced online course called Renting It Right. Mm-hmm. And it, it helps tenants, uh, particularly first-time renters, not only find rental housing and secure a tenancy, but then also learn about the rights and responsibilities in order to uh, to maintain a stable tenancy going forward. And so um, definitely, you know, um, knowing which, you know, knowing the right questions to ask your landlord uh, before you enter into a tenancy agreement, knowing how to avoid scams, um, you know, knowing the, the, you know, the most important terms that you should be considering when signing a tenancy agreement, those are all sorts of um questions we answer through that course. Cool. Give us the, how do, how do we access that course, Andrew? Yeah, so it's, it's uh, www.rentingitright.ca. .ca. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Boy, I bet it's just chock full with good information for folks these days and current information. Uh, and, and I should also add, um, there's a certification component to the course too. So students will work their way through a series of uh, videos and activities, and then uh, reach a final exam at the end of the course. And if they pass, they're provided with a certificate of completion 
that has been endorsed by Landlord BC. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, so we, we, you know, TRAC is a tenants' rights organization, and Landlord BC is a landlord's rights organization, but we have a really good working relationship. And um, so they endorse our course, and we actually endorse their online course, um, where a landlord can uh, can take it and pass it and then be placed on a, a registry with other graduates. So um, there's this good mutually beneficial relationship between our our seemingly opposing uh, organizations, uh, but yeah. So if, if you're if you're a first time renter or someone whose you know references aren't uh, you know as strong as they maybe should be, uh, definitely consider taking our course and and earning a certificate of completion. Oh, that sounds like a great resource, Andrew. And we on this this show specifically, we always say you know it's just the information you need at the right time. That's how you can make a decision, and you know, I think that's a great resource for people to be aware of. Um, Andrew, I'm curious, how long is the average tenancy in in BC typically? You know that's. That's a good question. I don't know if I can answer that. Um, but what I can say is that, my, you know, my, my guess is that, um, it, you know, that the, the length of, of time for the average tenancy is shrinking. Hmm. Um, and the reason I say that is because, you know, there's, there's money to be made in tenant turnover from a landlord's perspective, right? Um, you know, as soon as one tenant leaves and, and another one comes in, um, you know, there, there's no regulation of rent in okay. between those two tenancies, right? So, what we see is landlords often issuing um, two month notices for landlords' use of property um, and then never following through with mm. what they claim they would do on those notices. So, for instance, a landlord may issue that two month notice and say that close family uh, are going to move into the tenant's unit or that the landlord you know, themselves are going to move in or they're going to make extensive renovations that require the tenant to vacate. Um, you know, those are all valid reasons mm-hmm. for a landlord to evict a tenant. Um, the problem is that, you know, not all landlords are, unfortunately, uh, not all landlords are, you know, uh, have honest intentions when they're issuing those notices, and some will simply just move in new tenants mm-hmm. and and raise rent significantly. So the tenant so, moves out in, in good faith, and then, you know, the, the basis for that person moving out, I guess, after the fact, it can probably be pretty difficult to hold somebody to account, I assume. It, absolutely. You know, the... The, the, the Residential Tenancy Act does say that if a tenant um, discovers that a landlord didn't follow through with what they said they would do, um, you know, they can go to uh, the provincial uh, residential tenancy branch and use their dispute resolution service and go after the landlord for two months uh, rent as compensation. Mm-hmm. The problem is gathering sufficient evidence to, to prove your case. That can often be challenging. It sounds like that it's, it's easier... Uh, for a landlord to be able to get rid of a tenant, how does it work if a tenant wants to get out of that agreement or that lease with a landlord? What kind of resources uh, do you offer for somebody in that situation? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It's one of the most common questions we receive. So first off, you know, there, there are two different types of tenancy agreements that you can sign on to. They're, they're, you know, so if you have a month-to-month tenancy agreement, it's quite simple. Uh, the tenant can provide one full month's written notice before they move out. Now, the, the one tricky thing here is, is how that one month is calculated. So, uh, you know, today is October 17th. So if the tenant gave their one month written notice today, the last day of their tenancy would be November 30th. So, so you go to the full next, month, right? The, the end mm-hmm. of the next full month. Got yeah. it. Um, 
The other type of tenancy agreement that you have in BC is called a fixed-term tenancy, uh, typically known as a lease. So this could be you know, a six-month lease or a one-year lease where the tenant and the landlord have agreed that the tenancy will last for uh, you know, a, a fixed length of time. Um, with that tenancy agreement, it's a little uh, less straightforward if the tenant wants to, to break the lease or, or end the tenancy early. So there could be certain um, you know, financial uh, consequences for the tenant if they do end up breaking the lease. Um, now, if a tenant, say, breaks their lease six months into a one-year lease, the important thing for uh, the listeners to know out there is that the tenant doesn't automatically owe the remaining six months of rent. Uh, and that's a common misconception we, mm-hmm. we come across here. So as soon as a tenant has, has broken their lease and moved out, uh, the landlord has a legal obligation to, to mitigate the tenant's losses by trying to advertise the rental unit, by trying to show it to prospective tenants, and ultimately accepting a tenant at a reasonable price. And if the landlord, um, you know, after making all of those honest attempts to re-rent the unit, loses any money, then they might be able to go after the tenant for that money. But if the landlord finds a replacement right away and doesn't lose any money, then it's very unlikely that the, the landlord would actually be able to seek compensation from the tenant. Wow, that's good information, Andrew. We've been talking with Andrew Sakamoto from the Tenant Resource and Advisor Center. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.